This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. This week, Saudia Abdullah is running for King County Council in District 7, and she joins us to lay out her vision for South King County as it recovers from the pandemic. She also talks about growing up in the south side of Chicago and being inspired to get into service by the example of her father, who, after serving a prison sentence, went on to become an influential and beloved teacher in his community. I hope you'll join us for this wide-ranging conversation. It's next. My guest, Saudia Abdullah, has served as Community Corrections Division Director for the King County Department of Adult and Juvenile Detention since 2015, and she is running for King County Council in District 7. This includes Auburn, Federal Way, Algona, Pacific, Kent, Milton, and parts of unincorporated King County. We're so glad she could be here. Saudia Abdullah, how are you today? I am well. Thank you for asking. How are you? I'm doing fine. How are things going? You're kind of in the home stretch here uh, leading up to the primary. How, How are things feeling right now? Let's just say I'm getting all my steps in with all the door knocking that we're doing. And um, my my nieces and, co- and little cousins find it really fun to stand on the corners and wave signs as I, you know, stress about not getting hit by cars. But it is going well. You don't want to get hit by cars, but everybody's kind of getting their, their cardio in, right? You're getting your steps in, Absolutely. you're getting your, your sign waving in, yeah. So I want to start by uh, kind of introducing people to your personal story, because if you go on your website, it's quite compelling. You were introduced to politics and activism at, at a very young age. Maybe talk a little bit about that experience and, and tell us how it led to you running for office. So I'm originally from Chicago, Illinois. I come from the south side of Chicago, so when you you hear about all the news stories. That's the neighborhood I grew up in. That's sort of where I, I got my, my my start. And so it wasn't the best necessarily environment to grow up in, but those are my friends. They were my family. My, my father um, later in life would become an educator. Um, and his, he would died in 2008 of liver cancer. And we can talk about the healthcare system and my beliefs that they contributed to that. Um, but at the time of his death, he was a school teacher. Um, not only was school, she was the top school teacher at Dr. Martin Luther King High. They closed that school um, on the day of his death for his funeral, and 2,000 kids showed up. Wow. And so for me, I always kind of knew that you're not the sum total of the worst thing you've done in your life, and that at the end, it's about who, who shows up and what do they say. And I was proud to kind of sit there and say, okay, yeah, this is a man who made mistakes. But he, 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 made, he made changes and he made strides. And so that really sort of led me into working in criminal justice because I knew that, you know, when people came home, they needed an opportunity. And so about uh, 10 years ago now, uh, I was sitting in my office and a, and a guy from Pioneer Human Services, a nonprofit here that does federal reentry contracts, came up and we talked. And 45 days later, after having never been here, I was living in Seattle. Um, it was the year that they had the longest stretch of sun, so you all tricked me. You were ready. You were ready for the rain. That's what. That's how it really is. That's how people get tricked into moving here. Yeah. Yes. And so you know, so six years ago, I accepted the job for King County as the Community Correction Division Director, and my goal was really for everybody who's coming out um, into community to have them have access to opportunity, and that's what's important to me. And so after six years of sitting and working in the county, I realized that. We were getting so many different types of people with mental health, behavioral health problems, lack of education. And I realized the criminal justice system is the dumping ground, right? When, when education system fails, you end up there. When there's no jobs, you end up there. When our mental health system fails, you end up in the criminal justice system. And so it's time for me to sort of 
pick my head up out of just being doing criminal justice work and actually begin to do community work. And so that was part of the reason why I decided to run um, for King County in this cycle. The criminal justice system is the dumping ground. I really want to unpack that in a little bit because I know you have a lot to say uh, about our criminal justice system, having worked in it as long as you have. Um, but yeah, so fast forward to presence, as you as you say, um, you have been a resident, a very present resident in federal way in your community there, and and you've noted the many ways that you see King County. Uh, South King County in particular, being consistently overlooked and underserved. I wonder if you can talk about a few instances of that. So let's talk about, you know, one of the big things here in Federal Way now, a lot of citizens were very upset about the needle exchange programs coming in. Um, And and what all they saw was that these exchange programs were coming in and all of these needles were going out. But the part that they don't see is the reason why that van has to come here is because there's a lack of services. There's nowhere in community for an individual who wants to get help to go and get that help. And so there is this mobile thing that they have to do. Um, I, run, I run community programs a third of our, that are located in Seattle. A third of our participants live in the South End. And so we're expecting someone with no job, little education, mental health, behavioral health, or substance use disorder to get up on time, get on a bus when we don't have the best bus system, to make it downtown to show up for a program in the middle of a pandemic. That's not going to it wasn't happening before the pandemic. People are just not physically able to. So what I would like to see is actual investments. We have, we, we have money in King County, let's just be honest. Um, we have about 600 million in COVID relief dollars that, that spread across a variety of subjects. What I wanna see is those investments to come to South King County so that our folks are not having to go back and forth to Seattle so that we can begin to address people right here at home. If we really don't want people to be sleeping in our trails, if we really don't want human beings to be sleeping outside, then we have to provide them those services. I'll just ask you very bluntly, how much of this do you lay at the feet of the King County Council? Either lack of leadership, lack of action? How, how do you see it? A, a couple of things. One is lack of, it's a lack of advocacy for this area, right? Um, yes, King County Council needs to represent the entire council and needs to look at it in a holistic approach. But the reason why we have districts is so that those individuals can come to the table and say, hey, this is what my area needs. And right now, we don't have an advocate that's that's going to be uh, upfront, that is going to be at leading on things. What we, and that's where I come in. I understand what happens when we cut bus services because I actually ride the bus. I understand that, yes, we have some beautiful community centers and places for our youth to go after school, but they can't get there because it's not safe for them to take public transportation. So for me, it's not that they're, they're not doing things because they're doing work, but they're failing to operationalize things. And that's where, where, I, where I'm different. I understand how to take a policy and write it, but then also the operational impacts of that. Failing to operationalize. Okay, well, that'll be an ongoing theme through our discussion here, I think, because if we go through some of your priorities, uh, you know, we'll we'll just let's take small business and we'll start there. You want to bring more small business into South King County. I'd love to talk about, first of all, some of the opportunities that you see there and then also how you see the King County Council being able to facilitate that. So, first of all, it's not about reinventing the wheel. We have some really robust chambers of commerce that are already doing the work. They've done the research. And so when you pull out their reports, one of the things that they really talk about is that new employers, new employment comes from small businesses and existing business. 
And so one of the things we need to do is to be focusing on that. And so one of, we very briefly in the beginning mentioned contracting. Um, right now, the largest contractors, because of the convoluted nature of, of RFP system in King County, our small providers are not getting access to that because they just don't know how to go through the system. And so that's one of, that's a structural issue we need to change. But also as we look at these COVID relief dollars that are coming back into the county, um, how, are we, how are we making sure that our small businesses, one, know about them. You know, we got a movie in the park, we have signs up and we, we send emails and flyers, but we really have yet to see a flyer about how much money it is available for small businesses. So that's the other part, actually advertising to them directly. And then it's the equity issue. I love the fact that $25 million was carved out of these COVID relief dollars to specifically address BIPOC businesses. But there's still $92 million on the tape. How are we going to address the equity in that distribution? And so those are the things I want to do. I want to partner with community. I want to partner, want, um, when I worked for council of state governments and we went around to different uh, community agencies, you could call us and say, hey, this is what we're thinking of doing in our community. And we would walk you through it, but then we'd help you with an implementation grant so that you could actually start the work. And so that's how I see King County being uh, being helpful. That's how I see the council actually investing in communities with dollars, with the resources to help them get up to speed, and then it actually enforcing our subcontracting rules um, within the county. So for these large agencies that are getting millions and millions of dollars, they need to be required to contract with smaller agencies and sort of teach them the ropes as well. I want to contextualize what you're saying for listeners who may not know. So, and this is something you brought to my attention. According to a recent uh, report from the King County Auditor, 65% of the small businesses in the county's directory of contractors are white-owned, but those businesses received 75% of the county contracts. And then black-owned businesses only got 7%, and Latinx-owned just got 3%. This is a, 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 according to reporting in the Seattle Times. So, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about this this, but just in terms of a very brass tax way, in terms of the way that the county will oversee the distribution of these funds, how do you make sure, because you're talking about equity, how do you make sure that this money is distributed equitably? So, the, you know, it, the first thing is you have to have somebody watching, and that's just the reality. You know, when your parents told you to clean up, if nobody was watching, you stuffed it all under the bed, and that's where it went <laughs> for the remainder until somebody looked. And so the first thing would be we... we in King County now, they're hiring equity managers um, for all of the departments. And so part of that work can be distributed to them, but having a centralized location for someone whose job it is into procurement to be proactive. I think one of the things we have to stop doing is being reactive. And that's what the $25 million is, right? The smaller amount of money, that's being reactive. We know we have a history of, some, uh, of policies that have not allowed BIPOC businesses to have access. So yes, that's wonderful. But the structural change is having someone in place who trains community um, partners, who trains our community partners on how to get RFPs, who walks them through the process, but then also putting some of that onus on our larger community partners, that they need to also partner with some of these smaller agencies because they can't do it all. The reality is there are nuances when you, when you think of uh, an uh, agency that's doing mental health, right? Um, it's different when you're doing mental health for a Black person. It's different when you're doing mental health with Asians. And so if your staff is an all white staff, you likely need to partner with another counseling agency that has the cultural competency right. to, to be able to address those patients. 
Yep, I was just going to, those were the words that were coming to my mind, was cultural competency for sure. Another component of your uh, of the recovery that you want to focus on is child care. I don't think we really need to go into just how important this is to the recovery, but you want to focus on making child care affordable and accessible, and I'm wondering what you think uh, county government can and should be doing here. You know, so I work in the, prior to the pandemic, my office was in the Yesler building on the 5th, and there's a daycare center, a county daycare center that's like right across the street. And so when my employees would be having babies, oh, that's so great. You can go right across the street. They would be like, have you seen how much this place is? You know, thousands of dollars a week for childcare, for county employees. It it just didn't make sense to me. And so when I think about best starts for kids, that's one of the things I think about actual investments in in, in childcare. And we, we talk about, you know, $15 an hour, and that's wonderful, but you are not paying for childcare for $15 an hour and rent and, and, and all food and all those sorts of things. And so help in making sure that youth have access. There also, we have some education issues. And so the earlier we can get um, children into schools, the earlier we can get our children into educational systems, the more likely they will be able to be successful. And that comes with actually writing a check. Let it, I will be very clear. I will be very blunt. I am talking about King County Council authorizing and writing checks to child care providers, creating child care centers that are affordable, um, that, that are community-based and represent them and are open at the times when people need it. Not everybody's working nine to five. Some of our most critical and essential workers are working overnight, and they're the ones who do not have access to any child care. And I, I like what you say. I mean, you're, you're saying this really is an issue where King County opening up a, a checkbook can really, really make a substantive difference here. And, and, you know, you bring up education, too. And, you know, you, of course, want to increase access to quality education for everybody. I'll just ask you, uh, and this is probably a very large question, but how and where are things coming up short in South King County in particular in terms of education? So, you know, I'm college educated. My mother, everyone else in my family is probably be the first person who has a kid who's not interested. He's just college is not his thing. He's interested in the arts. He's interested in a whole lot of other things. The education system hasn't really been good to him. Um, he doesn't have really a place to go. And so if he, once he graduates, then what? And so what I want us to do is to really refocus our interest. Um, I think it was around 1991, especially for this state, is, is when we pulled vocation and pre-apprenticeships programs out of the, the K through 12 system and put them into the community college system, which again, initially sounds like a really good idea, but that operationalization of policy, what it also did was it increased our dropout rate. It increased um, the number of youth that are not going into these professions. The reality is I'm not building a house. I need someone with a construction trade to do that. I do not, I do not know how to work on my car. I need someone with an auto mechanic trade to do that. Having that, just as we have running start for those youth that want to go to college, we need to be having pre-apprenticeship and vocational programs um, in our high schools, and not just at one or two high schools. And maybe I'm a little old, but I remember when we had those things, I was able to do, learn how to do my taxes in school. I learned how to, you know, cook a couple of meals in my home at class. I learned how to change oil because we had an auto shop class. And so I'm talking about bringing some of those practical things about we have industry here. Imagine if we, we partner with some of our large aerospace farms to bring back pre-apprenticeship programs and vocational programs into our high schools. And now we have a pipeline directly into 
quality paying jobs, jobs that are going to help people sustain themselves. Now the, the $15 hour conversation becomes different. It's now a living wage conversation. It's now a career conversation. I like that. And, you know, there's, <laughs> there's, there's so much to be said about, you know, crafting the kind of, of education, whether it be at the apprenticeship level, for the kind of industry that we have here in the state, because we, we, we have so, we, we have such a diversity of industry. It would, I love the idea of these two things going hand in hand. Um, I want to finish up and I want to spend a little bit of time with you on this because this is very much your area of expertise uh, about talking about public safety. We know that crime is on the rise. Uh, Just last weekend through today, there were 10 shootings in and around Seattle. And I'll just ask you, as somebody with 24 years of criminal justice experience, how do you frame this? How do you think about this problem? And so I'll be honest, it's less about my 24 years experience in criminal justice and it's, it's more about those first 12 years I'm growing up in Chicago when, when gang violence and gun violence was at an all-time high. And so I, I, I sort of cringe that here we are, you know, some 40 years later, we're still talking about the same things, gun violence, crime. We're now living in a society where we are on edge. Everyone is, you know, I go to most events now, people, everybody's open carry, everyone's having a gun. We've become increasingly more aggressive. Um, and so that's an issue, right? And now you add into um, all of the other ills that are in, in society. I think the Seattle Times report, it looks like one of the perpetrators may have been about 25 years old. Um, and so my heart goes out to the victims, to their parents, their families. Um, and I look at this, this, this young life that is also lost. Um, and how do, we, how do we make some changes? And so, yes, my, my answers are framed by my 24 years experience, but they're also framed by my lived experience of having had friends die at an early age. So what do we do? First of all, we're not going to police our way out of this, right? We, we tried to police our way out of the crack cocaine epidemic and look what happened. What we're going to do is we're going to have early interventions. We're going to have opportunities for individuals to have those mechanisms by which to address some of those mental health and behavioral health issues that we're all dealing with, um, with, with, with the year being in, in 18 months of being inside, um, the, the vitriol that happens in our political climate and we look at TV and Everything is I hate you. You have on a gray shirt. I have on a red shirt. So we cannot possibly get along. And so really getting to the root of those problems and addressing them upstream. So having those interventions. Also, reallocating our law enforcement. This is really interesting. (laughs) You'll see a car on the side of the street um, that's a stolen car. You'll have five police officers that that are responding to that. Imagine if they weren't there, but they were actually patrolling to deal with some of the the actual violent issues that are happening in our area, in our neighborhoods. And so that's another issue, upstream interventions, but also changing how we respond to things, how our officers respond, making sure that they're actually able to do police work. So when a nightclub is getting out, when a, when a venue is really crowded, they can be there instead of, you know, when, when Uncle Joe is, is having a mental health breakdown. I don't need a cop, I need a clinician. And um, when I call 911, having the operator ask a few more questions. Is the person there experiencing a mental health breakdown? You know, is, is the person there have past mental health issues? Is this a substance use disorder issue? And really making a determination, is it a police officer that I need to send there or is it someone who can actually provide resources? And so, so I really think about this in, in, in a different way. I want police to do their jobs, police. I do not want them to be mental health clinicians. 
You know, and the studies show that they don't either. And so you're talking about a number of different modalities uh, that I think it's it's high time that we explore. You said something really striking when we were doing our pre-interview. You said that you believe police reform is not about retraining officers. It's about training them. Unpack that for me. How do you mean? So, you know, and, and, and it was a little different. I went to early in my career. I, I was in Georgia as a parole officer. and We carried weapons. And so you went through the same academy. You learn a lot about running, jumping, shooting, fighting, um, how to defend yourself and how to how to defend the public. But there was very little about how to talk. There was very little about how to use your voice to deescalate. There was very little about how what it looks like when a person is having a mental decompensation. And so we can't continue to train that way. Those things are critically important. Absolutely, I want our officers to know how to use the tools that they are given. But we also have to train them to deal with what's going on in the world today. And in the world today, we have increasing mental health problems, people. And that's just the reality. We, we, we have people that are, are over-reliant on the 911 system. You right now, anything that happens, first thing you think to do is call 911. You know, I, I don't feel well, I call 911. Um, my neighbor is too close to me, I, I call 911. And so we have, so the public has overused the system. And so police officers who are trained and ready to show up for interaction, sometimes there's no real interactions we have. And so helping officers understand the communities that they're in service. Um, one of the things that I also want to look at in, in my trainings that I've done, in Racine, Wisconsin, we have something called Cop House. And the police officers go into some of the worst neighborhoods. The police department buys a home there. They, you know, refurbish it, cut the grass, do all those sorts of things. They then begin to provide services out of that space. So if you need to go to a parent-teacher conference, but you can't get there because you don't have transportation, they have video conferencing for you. Um, the police officers in that particular town are required to start up a, a baseball team, a basketball team, some sort of sports team. And so now what they found in that community, instead of calling 911 when there's a problem, they call over to the house. They call over there and that way it's not necessarily uh, uh, an interaction with someone you don't know. And so really getting back to that community policing model, those are the things that we need to be looking at. Well, I know that you've been out in the community talking with people about this. What are people in the community saying to you about police reform? You know, so I'll, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm in South King County, so it's a, it's a bit of both. I have had the I've had individuals with a very strong, you know, no defund the police, no defund the police. And I always try to reframe the conversation. For me, this has never been about defund the police. This is always about reallocating resources to where they belong, um, making sure the officers have what they need to deal with the community at hand. And the other part I've had, I've, I've had those individuals that are like, absolutely, we need body cams, we need this. I push back on them a little bit because body cams are, are reactive. They just show you what happened. So I want to get to the proactive part. And so my, I stand somewhere in the middle of both groups, right? You know, I'm definitely not um, uh, with individuals that are saying there's no changes that need to be made. Um, and and I'm, I want to push people beyond body cameras. Body cameras are important to tell a story of what happens after the fact. I want us to get to be a, a more proactive solution. I want to shift gears slightly and talk about incarceration. Um, you note, and I think it's very clear that we have a problem with over-incarceration. Um, as somebody who works in corrections, what are some alternatives 
to incarceration that you would like to see? So one of the things we we, we got to be honest about is money. The first thing, anytime I talk about corrections, they say, well, how much is this going to cost? And I'll give you a number, but the cost of society is far greater. So with that said, um, we need to be bringing back community programming, two programs that were cut um, during this last budget. It was not a perfect program, but one of the things that it had was for individuals who have relicensing issues. Um, and so this is a person who, for whatever reason, driving drunk, or maybe they have suspended license, they no longer have their license. They could go back into court, and instead of paying a fine, because again, they're only making $15 an hour, um, they can come and work two or three days in the community and, 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 and have that fine. And I understand it was a very expensive program. The bringing back programs that could help those individuals, that individual cannot afford to pay $5,000 in, in, in legal fees. But right. they can take two or three days of their opportunity and help clean up a park, help clean up a parking lot. Um, we need to be thinking about, and we are we are continually expanding our electronic home detention so that individuals will be able to continue to go to work, go to school, but they can still be monitored. But we also need to think about, uh, you know, programs that di divert people out of the criminal justice system. Um, oftentimes, when when a person comes into the jail, their only warrant will be for one of my reentry programs, and so. The question I have is, if that's the only warrant, if this person was, you know, walking, maybe it was disorderly conduct, they haven't committed anything else, why are we taking them to the jail? Why can't we take them directly back to treatment? Why can't we take them directly to the service provider? Um, why pay the $160 a day for them to sleep overnight in jail, for them to go back to court, and all of the costs that are there when we could simply put them back into the treatment programs that they came from so that they will be able to get the help that they need? For me, it's a cyclical thing. We can't continue... To, to, to come up with the same solutions for our problems. It's not working. We have to do something different. You know, I, I just want to ask uh, one more question before I let you go, because this is a biggie. Uh, this is part of King County policy. There's a goal of reducing youth detention to zero. I know you're an advocate of this. Uh, it seems like such a, a game changer. It seems like it could change the whole, you know, uh, school to prison pipeline. A big question for you is how you think we can best get there. So, I'll start, they always say stories are the best. So there's, a, in, in federal way, there's called the EX3, it's the Boys and Girl Club, but it's for teens. And so I'm sitting outside one day waiting on my son. And I see this cop, huge kid walking out, and you can see he's kind of hiding something. And about five minutes later, I see somebody else running out. Somebody stole my shoes, somebody stole my shoes. And so I'm sitting there, okay, clearly I know who has these shoes. And so um, I kind of approached the kid the next day. I was like, listen, everybody saw you on camera. They're going to call the police. I happened to know at the time the executive director, like, wait, before you call the police, let's try to talk to him. And we were able to get the shoes back. Um, the, the parents of the child who, who, who had um, the shoes were stolen, the center actually had paid for the shoes, so they were not necessarily out of it. But the reality is, in most situations, they would have called the police. That kid, because he was on camera, would have you know, been charged because he it was some, I don't know, gym shoes. I'm not in sneaker culture. Um, but some several hundred dollar gym shoes. Um, so likely potentially could have gotten a felony over some gym shoes as a youth going to a teen center. So when we talk about zero youth detention, that's the kid I think. I think about is that the society that we want to live in that literally his life would be ruled with a felony? Because what job is he getting as a 16-year-old felon? He's not entering the military. He might not even get to some colleges. Um, so when I think of zero youth detention, that's the first thing that, that, that comes into mind is how do we divert that youth from uh, going into, into, into a jail. 
Um, and so that's really about employment, right? That kid needs a job. He needs a part-time job so he can buy his own shoes and, and that problem. Um, and yes, there's a cognitive thing that we need to have a conversation with him about why are you thinking that it's okay to pick up someone else's item instead. The other part is our youth don't know how to engage in conflict. You know, the first thing they do when they get angry is they pull out guns, they stab each other and things like that. And so upstream investments in our high schools, in our high school counselors, you know, most schools now have one counselor, maybe if they're lucky, but oftentimes there's one counselor for maybe two or three schools. And so having conflict resolution in our high schools, having a place for our youth to go um, before and after school. So those EX3 centers around the county are going to be critical, but making sure that they can get there safely. So those upstream investments. And will there be, unfortunately, youth who commit crimes? Yes. And we need to address those issues. But I have a very hard time locking a 13-year-old up forever. I just don't. Um, and then when you think about eventually, you know, 90 to 95% of individuals are released, a 16-year-old is going to be released. Last thing I'll say is we ran a program in Chicago, um, and these individuals have been convicted of violent crimes under the age of 25. Many of them were getting out when they were 50 and 60. They were lost, yeah. right? So they've been in prison since they were in their early 20s. They're now in their 50s and 60s. They're unable to get a job. Many don't know how to read or write. And so these are the individuals. So if we don't want to create another class of individuals who will be taken care of because we've taken their youth from them, then we need to begin to actually address them. I mean, address them where they are. And so this is the last thing I'll say is we also need to address them where they are. We like to put programs downtown. We like to put them in these fancy buildings. You know where the youth are? The mall, the bowling alley. You know, and again, I'll date myself. But, but my first health clinic was at the mall. And that's how me and my friends went and learned about the different you know, uh, things we need to learn about. Because that's, we need to make things accessible. And so as a King County Councilwoman, that's what I'll be doing is actually partnering with community to bring things to South King County um, to, to address those issues. I love the vision. I, I think it's just tremendous. Um, I will just ask you how people can help you campaign. I'm sure that they're, you know, you're in the home stretch here before the primary and then the general is a big long slog. What are some things that you could use right now? And so, you know, unfortunately, we still live in a system where money, money matters. Um, the incumbent has you know, probably five times what we have. And so going to friendsofsadia.com to make a donation. Um, but also, I want to hear from you. I want to hear these are the things that as a community member, I know are important. So I want to hear from everyone. Um, we need volunteers and sign waving and door knocking. Just understand if you're door knocking with me, put your, your comfortable shoes on because I, I can kind of do, you know, 40, 50 doors in a day. So uh, those are the things that we're needing. You can go to friendsofsadia.com, follow us on Facebook and Instagram uh, and Twitter. I'm trying to learn social media. Got a 17 year old. Like, you need Twitter. <laughs> still not ready for TikTok, not ready to do the TikTok dances. Yeah, but you still have your Fitbit. You're getting your steps in. So, you know, it's. You're, you're, you're modern. Listen, I'm older than you are. So, you know, we'll adapt. We'll be all right. Well, Sadia, this has been such a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time today and uh, best of luck with the campaign. Thank you very much for having me. Friendsofsadia.com. And that is it for this week. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. The website for the show is indivisiblepodcast.org, and the email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.